Hey everyone, this is Peggy Cal Enderly, and you're listening to the Ministry During the Disruption podcast. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Sandy Schugert, president of Valencia College in Orlando, Florida. Hey, Sandy. Hi, Peggy. So I can't even imagine what it's been like for you to be in higher ed administration for the last two months. What have your weeks been like? So it has been quite a season the last six, eight, ten weeks. But I've been doing this for 38 years, and, uh, you know, there have been storms before. I think one of the advantages of having been in uh, leadership for a long time is you learn not to overreact to, to some things. Uh, but it's been extraordinary. And, you know, in many ways, it's a mountaintop experience because people give their very best in a crisis. But you can only be in that modality for a while before it begins to wear pretty significantly. So we're trying to pivot back to a little bit more normal process for getting things done and a little more patience with decision making. So everything isn't a big surprise. Right. Especially in crisis, communication being so important to keep everyone as calm as possible. That's true. And I think we've had more Zoom meetings in the last eight weeks than I'd had in my entire life. I bet. What happened on the day you announced that campus would close? We didn't use that language. So we were on spring break and we said, uh, we're just going to extend spring break an additional week for students. And we're going to use the next 10, 12 days to convert everything we do online. About a third of the college's offerings were online to begin with. And uh, the faculty stepped right up. They functioned as a high-performing community of scholars. They helped each other. We had lots of support for them. And there were just many champions and heroes through that. And in 10 days, they moved 4,000 course sections online, as well as tutoring and advising and counseling and all the transactional services. So it was remarkable, amazing. We sent everybody home. I think the just to reflect on what it felt like, it, it felt to me a little bit like being a head basketball coach in a double overtime game in the final four. Um, things are coming at you really fast, and they really matter, and there's not a whole lot the coach can do. Uh, so I watched my team function uh, at such a high level, and I was there to encourage and support and give them some counsel, but just like the coach, I can't make a free throw, and I can't intercept a pass, and I can't steal the ball. I'm on the sideline. And I had to get used to the idea that my contribution was probably mostly made in preseason. In the ways that you prepared them. Yes. And at the same time, you, as a coach, would make some key calls. And I think as a leader, sometimes even if we seem really sure about our decisions. We're not because we don't know how they'll go. How do you manage your own doubts about your decisions? <laughs> well, I certainly have them. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I say a couple things about that. The first is um, there are principles that you hold on to. And uh, one of those principles is we're in the middle of a storm. We've got to navigate the waves that might swamp the boat but we also are on a journey to some point on the horizon. And if you forget that you're going somewhere 
and just manage to the waves, that's when you really get lost. And so my job was to say, yeah, let's manage the crisis, but let's not forget why we're in this enterprise to begin with. And so in every meeting we had, we started with the why. What are our real goals? And our real goal is the safety and health of our community, all of us and those we love, and the continuity of our students' experience. Because we know if they interrupt their education, many of them, especially the most vulnerable, won't get back on the path again. And so everybody cared about the same thing. How we do that, uh, I had to you know, kind of trust that those decisions were being made well deep in the organization, but making sure we were on the same music. So you've been with Valencia College for a while now. 20 years. 20 years. And you yourself and the college have won numerous awards for the ways that you, I would almost say you humanized uh, college education for a lot of your students. For you, what award are you most proud of receiving? I mean, I'm always grateful when the, the work of the staff and the faculty gets acknowledged because uh, it's remarkable. Um, but I don't think any of the formal awards um, are uh, top of mind for me. Uh, I guess the college won the first Aspen Prize for Excellence, and that was a big deal because it's it's not an award you can apply for. Um, they select you uh, sort of independently from the data on your students' performance and so on. But I think the happiest moment, the proudest moment in some ways, was not an award but a a consultant we brought in to study our identity, to do what's called a community identity study. And she interviewed people in the community about the college and interviewed people inside the college and then compares the two pictures that we painted to see how much of our own Kool-Aid we've been drinking. And uh, when she was done with all this and I sat down with her, I said, tell me what you learned. And she said, I want to work here. And I said, tell, tell me why you want to work here. And she said, well, uh, two reasons. One is, Everybody here knows why they're here. There's such a coherent sense of purpose in service to your students, and that's very attractive. And the other is that uh, I heard the best answer to my closing question here. So what was your closing question? It was, what makes this place special? And the answer that some of us had given was, it's the people here that are really different. They're what's extraordinary. Our, Our people are amazing. And I said, is that the answer? She said, no. The answer that impressed me was that several faculty said, our students are amazing. And, of course, that's the right answer. And they are amazing. They're astonishing. So is everyone else's students. But most colleges believe that they are amazing, uh, not that their students are amazing. The students are almost an afterthought. And we really believe they are. Of course, My faith comes into that because we believe that the image of God is impressed on every person. There's amazingness in every human soul, and our job is to try to find and cultivate and call that out of them, even the ones who bury it very deeply, and to have what I would just call a sacred anthropology at the root of our work, where we believe this human being in front of us is not a number, it's not a a magnetic strip on the back of a card is not an enrollment, isn't a report to the state. This is a human being, a unique person made in God's image and deserves a unique and loving response. 
not just from individuals, but also from institutions, which is really hard to do. Something you like to do is to walk around campus and greet students and talk to them. And I feel like that resonates with us in university because we talk so much about incarnational ministry and being with people. What do you like about going around meeting students, even continuing conversations with students kind of on the fly? So I think the essence of human connection is story. Uh, in First Corinthians 13, Paul makes the promise that someday we will be known even as we know. Uh, now it's through a glass, but darkly. But that future expectation, the hope that I will be completely known, all of us experience this sort of existential loneliness. And for God to know us all the way through, every cell, every thought, every wish, and love us thoroughly while knowing us utterly is the promise, I think, of fellowship with God. And fellowship with human beings is the same way. And the way we're known to each other is in story. And so I, I think it personalizes, it, it dignifies the humanity of the person you're with when you hear their story. And every story is full of hope and surprise and anguish and so on, and they're all unique. Our team decided that one of the worst effects of going remote uh, during the pandemic was the loss of personal contact and the feeling of loss of agency from our staff and students. And they decided one way to solve that was to call on the phone every student, call them all. That's almost 40,000 students. And they called them in about two and a half weeks. One of the staff persons called 1,801 students. And she was sending me names. Here's one you should talk to. And I was calling them myself. And it told the students, you're a person to us. And we didn't call to market anything to you. We called to say, how are you doing? Is there anything we can do to help you? If you're running up against an obstacle, I know some experts that might be able to help you. To me, one of the great challenges to all of our large institutions of every kind is not to dehumanize the people we were designed to serve by commoditizing them. And, uh, and story is the secret uh, ingredient for relationship and uniqueness with uh, human relationships. How do students normally respond when you call them and get them on the phone? <laughs> They're all over the place. Uh, some seem a little nervous at first, like I'm calling to, to bring them bad news. Um, maybe those are the ones that, like me, went to the principal's office in junior high. Um, but most of them are pretty matter-of-fact. Oh, okay, thanks. Appreciate the call. Let me tell you my story. And, um, and I listen. The better I listen, the, the more they tell me and uh, offer, you know, you can still reach me if you want to talk again. I give my phone number. I give them my email address. Just giving them the power to reach out and touch a person rather than an institution humanizes them. All my career, I've, I've thought no one should ever get a letter from the office of, let's say, the bursar. They should always get a letter from a person or an email message from a person, a person who gives them the power to reach back to them and contact them personally, not the office, and say, you reached out and said, I owed you money. I don't think I do. Let's talk about that, as opposed to an office or a 
to me, institutions have just learned how to dehumanize so thoroughly. And, but that's something that can be fixed. As your students are finishing up school, a lot of them are looking ahead with no jobs lined up. And that's happening all across the country where graduation is supposed to be a celebratory time. What words of encouragement would you have for these students as they're looking at a not-so-positive future? So the first thing I'd say is the prospects of the future haven't changed one bit in the last eight weeks or eight years or eight centuries. Uh, The circumstances have. But hope doesn't come from circumstances. Uh, Real hope comes from an expectation of goodness in the future that's still there. I was worried about this a little bit, and so I recorded a poem. It's not one of mine. It's one by a friend named David White, who's a magnificent poet, called Everything is Waiting for You. And I video recorded that, and we sent it to every student. Um, I won't read the whole poem to you, but the closing few lines are, put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. You know, the the universe is there in all of its wonder and complexity and mystery. Whatever's happening on the front page of the news and it's calling, beckoning to all of us to get engaged, join the conversation. The future is no more or less hopeful than it's ever been. I love those words. It reminds me of an adult version of Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. <laughs> Seuss. Yeah. I remember that book. The standard graduation present for high school graduates, yes. 